As we make our way and continue the narrative of Jesus' final week of his earthly ministry, we tread upon some of the most holy ground of all of Scripture in Matthew's Gospel as we come upon Christ's death on the cross. It really is the climax of it all in Matthew chapter 26 and 27, all leading up to Matthew chapter 28, which is the, the passage of the resurrection. And after nightfall of that Good Friday, Jesus is betrayed and arrested. He is subjected to trials before both Jewish and Roman authorities. At the beckoning of the Jewish leaders, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, pronounces a guilty verdict against his better judgment, and Jesus is crucified. I asked a question a few minutes ago, and the question was, what is significant about the cross? You see, for Christianity, the cross is our symbol, but it didn't always, or it didn't used to be that way. For years, it was a symbol of torture, of pain, of suffering. It wasn't until about the second century when the cross actually became a symbol of Christianity. The German philosopher Nietzsche called Christianity a religion for weaklings. He mocked the idea of a God who could be crucified. Several years ago, Josh McDowell debated a well-known Muslim apologist in Africa. At one point, the Muslim tried to ridicule the Christian faith by saying that Christians are riding on the back of a crucified man. To which McDowell answered and said, you're right. We are riding on the back of a crucified man and he is going to take us all the way up to heaven. You see, this little story illustrates a crucial difference in perspective. To the world, the cross is a picture and symbol of shame. But to those who believe in the power of the cross, it is a symbol of hope and salvation. You see, the cross is the centerpiece of all history and the determinant of our eternity because the cross reveals God's holiness. It reveals his character. It also reveals our wickedness and the humility of Jesus Christ. I want to quickly show you five groups of people that were there in Matthew 26 and 27, the day that Jesus went to the cross. And the display of each group of people and how they responded to the Son of God. The first group of people I want to look at is found in Matthew chapter 26. We can start in verse number 63. This first group is the Jewish leaders. Verse 63, it says, But Jesus held his peace. This is when they were questioning him at this trial. But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said to him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto them, Thou hast said. Basically, hey, you said it. Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. And verse 66, he is guilty of death. This first group of people 
on display are the Jewish leaders, and here's what they did. They rejected, they arrested, they accused and judged the Son of God. Another group of people we see on display that day were the Roman leaders. Matthew chapter 27, verse number 21, we see Pilate, and he is offering the crowd that is crying out for Jesus to be put to death. He is offering a treaty, a, 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 a peace deal, if you would. And he's saying, how about I give you a choice between Jesus of Nazareth and Barabbas, a thief, a murderer, who was sentenced to death. And he did that thinking surely the people would choose Jesus because he hasn't done anything wrong and they wouldn't want this murderer to come and be among them again and everything backfired. And as you read the account in these verses, you see that the crowd said, hey, give us Barabbas. We want Barabbas and Pontius Pilate said, well, what should I do with Jesus? And they shouted, crucify him. Pilate knew that Jesus had done no wrong, but he didn't know what to do, and really he cowarded in this position. Got a basin of water, and he washed his hands, saying, I wash my hands of this. You do with him what you would. But what we see of this Roman leader and the Roman leaders is that they sentenced and crucified the Son of God. A third group of people that we see are the soldiers. As the narrative continues, if you want to follow along in Matthew 27, starting in verse 27, the soldiers gathered around and they stripped Jesus of his garments. They scourged him. They mocked him. They beat him. They spat upon him. They placed a crown of thorns that they made upon his head and a scepter in his hands. They placed a robe around his naked body and mockingly bowed down. Hail Jesus, King of the Jews. They beat his body to a bloody pulp with a cat of nine tails. Crucifixion was a very horrible, horrific thing that many had to go through. In fact, one commentary says this, crucifixion was unspeakably painful and degrading. Whether tied or nailed to the cross, the victim endured countless parasisms. As he pulled with his arms and pushed with his legs to keep his chest cavity open for breathing and then collapsed in exhaustion until the demand for oxygen demanded renewed life. The scourging, the loss of blood, the shock from the pain all produced agony that could go on for days, ending at last by suffocation, cardiac arrest, or loss of blood. When there was a reason to hasten death, the execution squad would smash the victim's legs. Death followed almost immediately. No, Siri, I wasn't talking to you. 
either from shock or from collapse, that cut off breathing. Again, just a painful reminder of what our Savior went through. We see the Roman leaders, they sentenced and crucified the Son of God. The soldiers stripped and scourged and mocked and beat and spat upon the Son of God. The next group of people we see are the crowds. Those that were there to just mock and ridicule and make fun of. In verse number 40 of chapter 27, we see that the crowds, they said, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou truly be the Son of God, then come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priest mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be then the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. The crowds ridiculed, reviled, and shouted at the Son of God. But then there was a final group of people there that day. And for this, we have to go back to Matthew 26. The final group of people there on that day were the disciples. And with the disciples, we see some interesting things from his followers, the ones that spent several years of their life with him, learning from him. We see from Judas, from the others, from Peter, something very telling. You see, the disciples betrayed, denied, disobeyed, scattered, and deserted the Son of God. None of them proved faithful on that day. It's very easy to think, I wouldn't have done that. As a Christian, I would have been there for my Lord, for my Savior. Now, a lot was done in their lives after the crucifixion, after the resurrection. But at that moment, they cowered it as well. I want to read one more thing. I like what C.J. Mahaney says about all of these groups of people and trying to identify of who we should identify ourselves with. And it's very interesting to hear what he says. He says, I identify most with the angry mob, screaming, crucify him. He said, in fact, that's who we should all identify with. Because apart from God's grace, this is where we would all be standing. And we're only flattering ourselves to think otherwise. Unless you see yourself standing there with the shrieking crowd full of hostility and hatred for the holy and innocent Lamb of God, you don't really understand the nature and depth of your sin or the necessity of the cross. You see, when you read Matthew 26 and 27 and see these five groups of people on display, it should cause us to tremble at the horror of the wickedness in our own heart. But then there's something else that we see as we study out what Jesus went through on the cross and and what the cross teaches us. 
we see the humility of Christ. Again, he willingly went to the cross. Those who rejected Christ is a reminder of the darkness of our own hearts. Listen, the cross isn't just significant because of the pain and suffering that's associated with it. The cross is significant because of the humility that Jesus Christ showed. And when you study out those final hours that he spent with his disciples in the upper room in the Garden of Gethsemane, teaching them, instituting the Lord's Supper, when you see those seven sayings on the cross that Jesus made throughout the four Gospels, you discover three very important words that are key to our freedom. The first word is substitution. Here's what I mean. Jesus died our death. The Last Supper is significant when you go back to Matthew 26 because Jesus is the Passover lamb. In the Old Testament, the Jews needed the Passover lamb that, that, that was symbolic of their saving, but Jesus is the Passover lamb who saves us with his blood. They had to sacrifice an innocent animal to save them, but Jesus was the innocent lamb of God that was slain for the world, and his death was substitutionary, which means he died in our place. He died for you. He died for me. I love what David Platt says about this. He says, before the cross, we were headed to eternal death, because, but because of the cross, we now can have eternal life. Let me say that again. Before the cross, we were headed towards eternal death, but because of the cross, we now can have eternal life. And when we see the humility of Christ, the first word that stands out to us is substitution, that he died a substitutionary death. The second word that we see is the word propitiation. This word means that Jesus endured our condemnation. A propitiation refers to something or someone who turns aside wrath by taking away sin. The wrath of God would have come down to this world if not had been for Jesus Christ. And listen, before the cross, we were afraid of God. But because of the cross, we now can become friends of God. The third word is the word reconciliation. This means that Jesus suffered our separation. There are seven recorded sayings of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Quickly, these sayings are, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It really, I'm not going to go into depth on these tonight. That's another message entirely. But that Father forgive them for they know not what they do is really speaking of our own ignorance and the ignorance of those that were there on that day. He's crying out to his Father, pleading, Lord, forgive them. They're foolish. 
They're ignorant people. They don't understand what they're doing. A second saying on the cross, and again, this is a powerful study, as we'll get to down the road someday. Today, you will be with me in paradise when he is speaking to one of those that is being crucified beside him. The third saying was, woman, behold your son. The fourth saying is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The fifth saying is, I thirst. The sixth saying is, it is finished, or to tell us die. And the seventh saying is, into thy hands I commit my spirit. You see, Jesus suffered our separation. And that's what reconciliation is all about. Reconciling us to God. Listen, before the cross, we were cast out of God's presence. But because of the cross, we have been invited into God's presence. And here's where it boils down to. We must respond to the cross. as not a symbol of suffering, of shame, of torture, but a symbol of our salvation. You see, and for those that have never trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, I don't know who's watching, who's listening tonight, but for those who have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the cross is your salvation. Because of what Jesus suffered, because of what he went through, gives you the opportunity to be saved, to be redeemed, to be forgiven, no matter what you have done, no matter how bad, how wicked you were. All of us before Christ, as Paul says, we were dead in trespasses and sin. But I think of Ephesians chapter 2, but God, who was rich in love, We're rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. And he gave himself for us to be our propitiation, to be our reconciliation, to be our substitute. The death that Jesus died was meant for us. It was meant for you. It was meant for for me. And those that have never trusted In Jesus Christ, I encourage you to ask God to forgive you of your sins. Come into your heart and be your Savior. He can save you. He wants to save you. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world. It doesn't matter the the craziness that is outside right now. Jesus came for you and he came for me. And for the Christian, we must respond to the cross as well. You see, we must proclaim the hope of the gospel that Jesus Christ came to save sinners and to set sinners free. And as we've talked about for months and months and months in Ephesians, he has set us free. Those that have called upon his name 
We are no longer a slave to fear. We are no longer a slave to sin. Praise God. (laughs) He has set us free. He has redeemed us. He has chosen us. He has called us by name. And our response to the cross must be to proclaim the hope of the gospel that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Like that old song, I was once a sinner, but he came. I'm thankful that that's not who I'm identified with anymore. When I got saved and I was four years old, Jesus washed away my sins. Doesn't mean I still don't sin and, and mess up and fall short, but he washed away my sins. I have a new identity. I have a new name that's written down in glory. And those that are Christians, those that are watching with us tonight, you do as well. You see, the cross is the centerpiece for all of history, and it's the determinant of our eternity. You can't get to heaven unless you realize what Jesus did on the cross. Accept that Jesus died a death that he did not have to die. And realize that he died for you. And he died for me.